Well, I am, for those who don't know, I'm David Parrish. I am one of the deacons here, um, and I have the uh, privilege of, of teaching once in a while. Um, and and I, I may have mentioned this before, I can't remember if I have or not, but there's something very strange about um, teaching up here. And, and, and it's something, I don't, I'm not really sure that um, until you do it, you can fully experience it. There's something about it that's like, the, it's the form of like a public confessional. Um, it's very disconcerting. Like it's sort of like, you know, um, so you guys can just deal with my baggage and we'll all just move on together. That's the way it feels, right? So if you ever want to experience crippling self-doubt, um, vo- volunteer to preach and then, um, and then and you'll, you'll really get a sense of it. Um, okay, so moving on, right? Um, so our series this uh, Advent is focusing on the idea of God's presence. The idea that God um, desires to dwell with his people, that his creation right, um, uh, is meant to be, like Aaron talked about a few weeks ago, his creation was meant to be a palace temple, a place where he could dwell with his people. Right? Then the sin of Adam and Eve mars that. Right? It, um, it, it disrupts the relationship between God and his people, and the Adam and Eve are then removed or sent away from his presence. And so the Old Testament then, like Eric talked about last week, is um, really a story about God kind of restoring his place with his people. So um, he draws a people to himself, Abraham, right? Isaac, Jacob, right? And then those people are um, enslaved in Egypt. He then draws his people out of Egypt. He then dwells with those people in specific ways, Right, so the creation of the tabernacle is an example of God dwelling with his people in that specific context. The um, building of the temple is God then establishing his more permanent, in a sense, presence with his people. Right, that presence, though, is mediated by priests, by sacrifices. There's a, a sort of presence with God, but the presence is limited. It is limited in um, very specific ways. So this morning, what I'll be discussing is the incarnation, God with us, God dwelling with us in the flesh. Um, And and this is a huge topic, and we won't be able to address all of it. And it is also, um, uh, in in, in my kind of experience over the past week or so, a a pretty fraught topic. Um, There are all sorts of unhelpful things you can say about the incarnation, um, and all sorts of heretical things you can say about the Incarnation. Um, and so I was talking to Mark Rappenchuk about it over the last week or so, um, and I was, I was kind of trying to bounce some ideas off of him, and he kept saying, no, you can't say that. Um, and I said, okay, okay. And so then I would say something else, he's like, no, you can't say that. Um, okay. Um, and so he never told me what I could say, so we will see, um, <laughs> we will see how this goes. Um, And so what I want to do with um, the Incarnation, what I want to do with this idea of God with us, the idea of God dwelling with us in the flesh, in the Incarnation, what I want to do with this is I want to break it down into three different questions, right? And the first question is is in some ways um, very important, right? Very foundational. It's this idea of, um, like, what is the Incarnation? Right? What is the Incarnation? I mean, it's a simple question in so many ways, um, but it is kind of foundational to kind of thinking through the rest of what we'll be doing. All right, so um, to answer that question, I, obviously there are key texts in the New Testament that help us to answer this question. And I should mention, too, that I'm just going to be bouncing around. I'm not going to be camping in a specific um, kind of um, 
uh, place in Scripture. I'm going to be kind of bouncing from Scripture to Scripture, but I hope that if you have the references, you'll be able to follow along. So what is the Incarnation? John, in the Gospel of John, tells us um, that the Incarnation is the enfleshment of God, that God comes to dwell with us, that he, um, in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes to dwell among us. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's so much going on there. We could spend um, 30 minutes talking about that, but we just don't have time to do so. Um, But the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that God that was in the beginning, that Word that was in the beginning, through which all things were made, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the incarnation then is the enfleshment of the Word, right? The enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity. He becomes human and dwells among us. So there is the, um, the, 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 the reality, this, this sort of mysterious and incomprehensible reality that the God of creation becomes man to dwell with his people. So he's... It, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of God restoring his presence, not by making us like him, but becoming like us. And we'll kind of get to that more in a little bit. Right? We see other kind of descriptions of the incarnation in the Gospel of Matthew. Right? Now the birth of Jesus Christ, it says, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So God then dwells with us in the person of Jesus to save his people from their sins. So we have then in the incarnation... God dwelling with man, and Jesus then is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Again, a sort of an incomprehensible reality, but it is a reality that defines um, the the Christian um, view of the world, the Christian view of salvation, the Christian view of the Trinity. So this, though, what is the incarnation? If we answer it in this way, God is um, dwelling among his people as fully man, in the person of Jesus, right? That raises a second question, right? Why incarnation? Why did God become man? And Matthew talks about that a little bit, to save his people from their sins. But what I want to do really quick is I want to give um, five different reasons why God became man, right? Five different reasons why God um, dwelt among us in this particular form, right? The first is to provide a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of humanity, 
Again, I'm not going to unpack each of these um, by looking at the specific references. Like, I'm trying to give you the references so that you can look at them um, and, and, and kind of engage with them on your own, because we just don't have time to do that together this morning. So the first is to provide a substitutionary sacrifice. So to save his people from their sins by um, providing a substitutionary sacrifice. A second reason that God becomes man, right? A second reason for the incarnation is to reveal God to humanity. God had revealed himself in different ways to different peoples at different times, but this is a way, the way that he chooses to reveal himself to us in kind of the fullness of his glory. Right, the third is to provide a high priest interceding for us who is able to sympathize with human weakness. The fourth is to pattern, offer, sorry, offer a pattern of the fullness of human life. And the fifth is to destroy the power of the devil. So I pulled these, ref, or these, um, these answers to this question from a book called The God Who Became Human by Graham Cole. Um, it's a helpful um, look at the incarnation if you would like to kind of engage with this a bit more on your own. So we could easily focus on any one of these five for the remainder of our time. Right? We could easily engage with any one of these for the remainder of our time. But what I want to do instead, instead of focusing on any specific one of these, what I want to do instead is to think about the ways that some of these are connected. Right? To think about the relationship between some of these, not all of them, but between some of them. And I want to do this by focusing on an idea that I have been kind of thinking about a lot over the past few months and um, just an idea that I am still kind of wrestling with. Again, kind of thinking about this as a public confessional. Right? This is um, the ways that I've kind of been engaging with the, the, the incarnation. These are the ways I've been engaging with the, the incarnation. And so I want to think about the relationship between these by focusing on the ideas of dependence and limitations. Dependence and limitations, and I know I've talked about that in previous sermons, um, and I know I've talked about it in different contexts, but it's been an idea that has been, I think, very sort of um, helpful for me over the past while. Um, and I want to, again, like I said, think about the ways these are connected by thinking about um, these in terms of dependence and limitations. So Jesus reveals God to humanity. Jesus reveals God to humanity. He reveals the fullness of God to humanity. So the incarnation reveal, reveals God to humanity. So what do I mean by that? Right? What I mean by that is Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. And when I say God's love, I mean God's care for his people, right? So he's the embodiment of God's love and care for his people. God is embodied and then lives that love and care out. He dwells with us, right? That's part of the way he loves us is by pursuing us and dwelling with us, right? He also demonstrates his love for us by um, demonstrating his power, so miracles, then, are representations of God's love. And, and they're representations of God's love not only because they are healing the sick or restoring sight to the blind, but they're giving us an image of what God intends for us. 
Right? So the miracles are, are not just healing. They're not just restoring sight. They are giving us, providing us the image of what it means to be with God, what it means to dwell with God. Um, and so the, 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 the sort of presence of Jesus, the, um, the person of Jesus kind of reveals God by revealing the kingdom of God. So it reveals God's love and it reveals God's kingdom. And that kingdom then is also a different revelation of God's love. Right? Jesus also reveals God's power over death. Right? Over death and over um, the power of sin and Satan. Okay, so Jesus reveals God's love power. He reveals God to humanity. But the revelation of God to humanity, like the fact that Jesus is revealing God to humanity, reveals something about humanity. And what it reveals about humanity is that we are not God, right? And that is such a simple idea, but I think it's such an important idea, and it's kind of an idea I want to camp out at for a little while. By revealing God to humanity, Jesus is also revealing humanity to humanity. He is revealing to us that we are not God. Like God's presence with us is like clear evidence of what we are not. Right? So by dwelling with us, he is saying, I am God, I love you, I have this power over creation, I have right, this vision for you, and you are not this. And that is in some sense, right, a, a well, I'll come back to that in just a second. So the very nature of creation right, imposes limits on us. Right? The fact that we are created beings means that we have limits imposed on us by God. So the fact that we are here and we're not somewhere else, the fact that we are in this time, not some other time, are limits imposed on us by our creaturely status. Right? The fact that Eve was created as a helper meant that Adam was limited in some way. Right? So creation imposes limits on us. And by revealing God to us, Right? Jesus also then reveals what it means to be human. Right? He reveals what it means to live into the fullness of humanity as God intended. Right? And so I want to think about this in a different way. When we think about the fall, right? when we think about Adam and Eve's sin that separates them from the presence of God, right? if we turn to Genesis 3, if we turn to Genesis 3, if we think about the fall and we think about the sin that separates Adam and Eve from the presence of God. But I'm going to read part of Genesis 3 because it's going to kind of frame what we're going to talk about in just a little bit. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I want to stop there, because to some degree, what is happening there is right, that Satan is telling Eve, that she is limitless, 
right? That she is not bound by the limitations imposed on her by God, right? That she will be like God, right? That she will be without limits like God, that she will um, have, right, the ability to know good and evil, right? You won't die. You aren't limited. You can engage in this way. So in a sense, like the first sin that separates humanity from the presence of God is a rejection of the limits imposed on us by a God who made us, who made us so that we can experience with him kind of the fullness of his love. So limitations then are a gift, Limitations are not a deficiency. So we are, by God's good design, finite. We are, by his design, limited creatures. Right? We are limited. Our creation limits us, and that is the way that it was intended to be. So the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, wrote that negotiating what it means to be dependent is part of being human. Right? So part of what it means to be human is to be dependent. And I want to argue that the incarnation affirms this. Right? The incarnation is an affirmation of our dependence. Right? And the incarnation affirms this aspect of creation. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, was dependent on his mother. He was an infant dependent on his mother. Right? He was a young boy dependent on his parents. He lived at a particular time in a particular place. He was limited. He was dependent. And we all experience dependence and limitations. And as we grow from adolescence to adulthood, we, began, we begin, I should say, to feel less dependent. We begin to feel more and more independent. But that independence is an illusion. Right? Even if we think we're independent, we are dependent on others who grow food, who produce clothing, who, um, I mean, the list is endless. Right? We are dependent on others, and we chafe against that dependence, just like Eve. We chafe against that dependence. We reject that idea of dependence. So the question then is, why do we chafe against that dependence? The reason we chafe against dependence is, I would think, because, um, I mean, there's multiple reasons, right? We assume, though, that the best relationship that we can have to the world is to be in control, right? That control is a source of security. That control is a source of strength, right? We believe that control of our circumstances will protect us in some way, but we believe that control of our relationships will kind of protect those relationships in some way. So we assume that the best relationship we can have to the world is to be in control of the world. And again, that manifests itself in different ways. So that can be like the pursuit of health, right? We want to control our health because we are fearful of death. We want to control our body because we are fearful of illness or weakness. We want to control our house because we are fearful of judgment. We want to control our marriage, etc. Like there are reasons why we pursue control, and usually that pursuit of control is rooted in fear. Right? It's rooted in fear. Um, and that fear then is, um, like in a sense, a lack of trust in God's provision. 
a lack of trust in the provision of God. Okay, so for many of us, the most comfortable place to be, the most comfortable way to exist is from a position where we think of is as control. So limits remind us that we are not in control. Right? Our physical limits remind us that we're not in control. Right? The, the fact that our bodies age remind us that we're not in control. The fact that um, we have, if you are like me and you are weak, right? You have very like real physical limits, right? And so these limits, though, are key to understanding our relationship with God because our limits remind us that we are not God, right? So in a sense, when, when, when Christ comes and when Christ then um, becomes human, he reveals God to us, but he also reveals to us what it is to be human, Right? And he reveals right, the limitedness of humanity. In, in, by being fully God and fully man, he reveals the limitedness of humanity and reveals that we are, in fact, dependent on God and that we are dependent on other people. So limitations can be embarrassing. Asking for help can be a humbling experience. We often view asking for help as um, failure. As, as our failure, like we have failed in some way and that's when we ask for help, right? And we fear that asking for help is, right, a result of kind of us having lost control, right? So as we lose control and we ask for help, then we experience that negatively, right? We experience that as a problem. And I'm going to help us try to think about that differently. We are also frustrated by other people's limitations, Right? We're frustrated by other people's limitations because those limitations often demand something of us. Those limitations often demand something of us. They impose upon us and they are unpredictable. Right? Those demands are unpredictable. And if you are attempting to live a life where you're controlling your circumstances, other people's limitations make that difficult because they're unpredictable. Right? Their, their limitations limit our ability to control our lives. Right? But this also can shape the way that we think about God's love for us. Right? So if, if we believe that God cannot delight in us if we are constantly dependent on him, then we have a pretty um, distorted view of God's love for us. Right, a pretty messed up view of God's love. Right, so what we often do is we take our frustrations with other people's limits and we, we sort of almost project those frustrations onto God. Right, well, he must be frustrated with me. He must be frustrated with my inability to do these things. But that misses then the ways that God loves us and the ways that God loves us as his dependent creatures. But what I want to do for the remainder of our time is to help us think about how our dependence and other people's dependence on us and our dependence on other people is actually meant to help clarify our relationship with God. Because I want to argue, um, kind of based on Kelly Capick's book, that love not escaping or overcoming our limits is the goal of life. 
So limitations provide an outlet for expressions of love. Right? If you only um, served people who didn't need your help, right? I mean, I guess that's nice in some ways, but honestly, like if, if Amanda decided to put my shoes on in the morning for me and to tie them, it would be really weird. Right? I mean, that would be strange. Maybe it would be an act of love and care on her part, but it would be really strange because I'm able to do that myself. But in like five years when I'm a sort of, you know, tottering old man who can't do anything anymore, right? Like, and she's putting my shoes on me, right? Like, that might be a greater act of love. Does, does that make sense? Right, so, like, my limitations, um, my limitations then um, provide opportunities for people to demonstrate love for me. And their limitations provide me opportunities to demonstrate love for them. So limitations, the fact that we are limited creatures, that we cannot do things on our own, are actually ways that we get to participate in kind of God's kind of broader kind of economy of, of love, right? The fact that we're limited, the fact that... Um, all of us are limited means that we get to experience God's provision for us, right, as a gift. And it also means that we then get to share that provision with one another as a gift. If we were all completely independent creatures, right, that relationship doesn't exist. We could just operate on our own and there would be no reason for um, an engagement with God. Right? Our, the most obvious way that we are dependent, and I, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, the most obvious way that we are dependent is, of course, our dependence on um, God for life. Right? Um, but we are also then dependent upon God for salvation. Right? Once we had severed that relationship with God, we are dependent on him to save us. And so to some degree, our attempts to save ourselves, our attempts to um, make ourselves right with God are actually rooted in the same kind of issues um, that, that, that drove us away from him in the beginning. So limitations provide an outlet for expressions of love. Like our limitations provide us the opportunity to love one another. Right, but again, like limitations, our limitations, our inability to save ourselves, our limitations, our inability to um, kind of serve one another and love one another well, also provided God an opportunity to then pour out his love on us. Right, so our limitations then are a ways, outlets for us to love one another, but it's also kind of a way that God then expresses his love for us. And we see this in Philippians 2. Right, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Right, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ then pours out his love for us by humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, because we cannot save ourselves. Right? So he humbles himself to the point of death, death on a cross, to save us because we are limited creatures, but we are limited creatures with whom God desires to dwell. 1 John 3, 16, 18 says this, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right, so the fact that we are limited creatures is rooted in creation, and it's also then kind of rooted in the fact that this is the way that we show love to one another. Right? We show love to one another in our limitations, by meeting the needs of others who are limited in whatever capacity. Right? And Christ doesn't just model that for us. Right? He models it for us, but he does much more than model for us. Right? He redeems us back into the full and complete presence of God. So what that does then is it sanctifies and glorifies our humanness, right? It, it sanctifies and glorifies our limitedness in that new reality, and so we can then participate as we were intended to participate in the fullness of God's presence. So the incarnation then is key to understanding not just who God is, it is key to that, but it's also key because it reveals to us what it means to be human and what it means to dwell as humans in God's presence. And part of that is to experience the gifts that he gives us because we are limited and he's meeting us in that need. And part of that then is we share those gifts with others because we recognize that that is what it is to participate in kind of the fullness of God's presence, to participate in that, 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 that love, that sort of Trinitarian outpouring of love. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, we thank you for the ways that you have um, revealed yourself to us. We thank you for Jesus and the way that he reveals um, your love for us, um, and the ways that he um, has revealed your love for us by dying um, on our behalf, by redeeming us into your presence. We pray that we would be people who are drawn into that story, that we would be people who are drawn into that love that you share um, amongst, your, uh, amongst the Trinity, that you would um, then draw us into that um, love, that we would pour that love out onto um, our neighbors as you have poured it out onto us. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.